Hello and welcome to another episode of What Makes You Click. I'm your host, Kelvin Bullock. And on today's episode, our guest is someone who isn't afraid to uproot and do something totally different. I mean, I'm talking about a person who has basically had three separate careers and didn't really even pick up a camera until the age of 40, but is now doing some amazing things in the uh, editorial and commercial world. So without further ado, let's take a listen to hear what makes Mr. Chris Sorensen click. Chris, hey, man, I appreciate you for hopping on this call and having this conversation with me in preparation for the chat. I was like, how did I even become aware of Chris Sorensen? And that actually happened about a month ago on Instagram. I don't even remember how I came across. I don't know if you were in my explore page or if I just come across you through random surfing. But I I clicked on your profile and immediately I saw like, yo, this cat is a dope photographer. So, you know, and so I hit follow because I'm like, yo, any dope photographer that I can find inspiration from, like, I'm going to I'm going to follow him. So I hit follow and, you know, that was that. And then you post and I, you know, engage with your with your work. And then maybe what? Two weeks ago, last week, I was submitting a entry for the American Photography 37 series that they're doing. You know, they do one every year. And this was like my first time actually submitting. And so what I did was I looked at all of the entries or the people who were selected and chosen from the previous year, from last year. And it was like, I don't know, over 500 images in those selections. So I I went through all of them just to see, okay, who is, who is getting selected? Like what kind of work are they really, you know, thinking is, is suitable for their publication or the book that they print every year. And so I went through all 500 and after that, I'm like, okay, I have a couple of images that I think I can submit, but let me just go back and screenshot a few of them just so I can see how they wrote out their descriptions and all of that. So I went back and I screenshotted three of them, not really paying attention to who the actual photographers were, but I was really just like looking at the images. And so when I went back and I started breaking it down a little bit more, I realized like, oh, snap. I screenshotted one of Chris Sorensen's photos and it was the shot that you had taken for the My Fair Lady production where she was laying on the ground. I'm like, oh, wow, like this is a sign. I need to reach out to him to see if he'd be, you know, interested in in coming on the show. So here we are. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that you did. It was uh, an honor to be invited and I'm happy to be here. And, you know, when you followed me, you know, a month or so ago, you know, I do the same thing that you did. I looked at, you know, when everybody follows me, I look at their work and I'm like, is this someone I want to see their photography on a daily basis? And is it somebody I can be inspired by, enjoy their work? And, you know, so I immediately followed you back because yes, you know, I mean, your work is great as well. And so it was, it was nice to, you know, get the follow from somebody whose work I respect and also to get this invite. 
Thank you, first of all, for your compliment and the follow back, because I'm I'm all, all about the support. So but one thing that I like to do uh, on this show is and, and this actually comes from my past of growing up and really being interested in, you know, how people started or where people came from. And in my research, I, I saw that you are from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So let's let's start there. Tell me a little bit about your growing up or how even did your family end up in Sioux Falls? Is that where they've been for generations? I was actually born in San Diego when my dad was serving in the Navy. So he was stationed there on, you know, on his way to Vietnam where he served two tours in the Navy. And so I was born in San Diego, but very quickly after my dad got out of the Navy, they just moved back to South Dakota. So pretty much my entire upbringing was in South Dakota. And there's a lot of Scandinavian people, you know, my last name is Sorensen. I'm Danish heritage. And there's a lot of Danes and Norwegians and Swedes in the Minnesota, South Dakota area. And so my family moved there in the early 1900s and has been there ever since. Both sides of my family are actually predominantly Danish. So I'm three quarters Danish, one quarter Irish. And I grew up in South Dakota in a kind of a blue collar, kind of lower income family. And i wasn't into photography growing up. If you had told me when I was 5, 10, 15 years old that I was a, would be a photographer, you know, later in life I would have been what? Because it was not something that would have ever crossed my mind. I didn't grow up in a household of people who had gone to college who appreciated the arts and photography back then when you had to shoot film and everything was an expensive hobby and or profession. So I didn't grow up with cameras and I didn't grow up with any of that. You know, I grew up, you know, initially wanting to be a doctor and, you know, then, it, you know, doctor and an English major. That was always what I was, I was going to double major in college because I always loved to write. There was always a, an artistic side to me, but I was also very technical and went away to college, to Texas, to TCU, Texas Christian University, and got a degree in English and a second major in communication and thought I was going to maybe go to law school, but then decided to, uh, you know, having grown up poor, I didn't want to continue to be the poor starving student. So I got accepted into a finance program for Prudential Real Estate, the real estate arm of Prudential, and was doing finance and worked in the finance world for 12 years and always thought, you know, I'm eventually I'm going to go and write because, you know, like I said, I always wanted, you know, as an English major, always followed through on that. Um, well, I'm sorry, before you get too far, because you've said a couple of things and you said that you were really into reading and, and writing or that was like your creative outlet as a child. Like, I guess, how did that even come about? When did you even realize that, oh, man, I'm really into storytelling or even reading or writing it? Like, when did that even become a thing for you? I was the first person on either side of my family to go to college. It wasn't I, so I didn't grow up in a in an educated household. Not that my parents aren't smart or whatever, but it was just they were blue collar. Also, you know, you know, I came from a divorced family. My parents got divorced when I was five, so I was just living with my mom and being a kind of smart kid with a just a mom. You know, I was a nerdy kid to be honest. And I think a lot of times in those situations, you retreat to books. It was my refuge and I would read voraciously, you know, I'd read a book a day or several books a week. And so for me, it became a way to educate myself, a way to escape a safe haven. And so I think that was the genesis of that love for writing and and reading and the creativity and the release that that provides. Yeah, I can totally relate to what you say in regard to, you know, having a situation where you want to escape from. I, too, come from divorced parents. They were actually 
Uh, I was 13 when they got divorced, but I found for me reading uh, as well was that escape. So I, I totally get you there. And so, like you said, went off to college and you decided, OK, I'm going to major in English and communications. Right. Right. And then I got this basically uh, Prudential hired like 12 people nationwide for this, what they call this financial analyst program, where they sent you for a month and a half to this training program. And basically it was almost a mini MBA kind of thing. And then they you know, dropped you into an office and I was in Dallas and you just got a ton of experience and opportunity to you know, utilize your skills. And so I did that for three years and then the program was over got uh, moved on to CB Commercial as an investment analyst there, and then eventually got hired away to run a division of another uh, real estate finance company. And I did that for five years and was lucky to do well financially. And so at the end of those five years at that company and 12 years in total in finance, I had saved up enough money. And I was like, you know, I'm almost 35 years old. If I'm going to be the writer that I've always told myself I'm going to be, I need to do it. Oh, wow. You know, and so I told my boss and mentor who had hired me to my last two jobs, I'm quitting. And he's like, You're stupid. <laughs> you know, if you keep doing this for another five, 10 years, you'll be, I mean, yes, you have a nice nest egg saved up now, but if you keep doing this, you'll be very rich or not very rich, but I mean you'll be richer, well you'll be more successful. You you know, you, you won't need to worry. And I'm like, yeah, but if I wait another five to 10 years, I'm going to be 40, I'm going to be 45. I'm never going to do it. There's a lot of inertia that keeps people from trying things. And the longer you stay, the harder the cement dries around you, I think. And so I said, I got to go now if I'm going to go. So I quit and I moved to New York to study screenwriting at NYU. Wow. And as, as part of that program, or not as part of that program, but outside of that program, but part of that whole experience, I decided to take an acting class because I thought oh, that would help my writing, you know, to know how actors think. So I took the class for a month and I enjoyed it. It was social. It was getting out of the house and writing was standing in, or sitting in front of a blank computer screen. So I kept taking the acting class and taking the acting class. And finally, the acting teacher said, Hey, I'm not going to teach you anymore unless you get headshots and start auditioning because you're not going to progress unless you take that next step. So I went and got headshots, which was actually my first exposure to professional photography since my senior pictures and started auditioning. And I was lucky to start booking things, you know, some TV, you know, I did a law and order SVU, like so oh, many wow. New, York art or New York artists or actors do, but I booked a fair amount of commercials, you know, Budweiser commercial and New York life commercial and Olive Garden commercial, you know, those national network commercials are almost like hitting the lottery and a lot of New York actors when you start booking those commercials, you also end up getting a print agent because, you know, if you're shooting a Citibank commercial, you might also just shoot the pretty Citibank print ad. So I ended up with a print agent and started shooting print ads and working with some amazing photographers, Solvay Sunsbo, Walter Chin, Phil Taladano, Jake Chesum. I mean, just some amazing people. And I would hang out on the breaks on those shoots with them and their assistants, because going back to talking about my childhood, I loved the creative side of the English and writing, but I also loved the science of, you know, I wanted to be a doctor. I've always had a kind of the dichotomy of creative and technical and photography scratched both of those itches. You know, I was like, wow, this is cool. So finally, after doing this for a few years, I bought a used DSLR, a Nikon D50 and started shooting my model and actor friends and teaching myself photography and lighting. And they started using them. And then their agents started reaching out to me and said, Hey, you shot Jeff's headshots or his model test. I have somebody else. What do you charge? 
And suddenly I was like, okay. I mean, and I knew what the rate was because I was in that world, mm-hmm. but suddenly I was acting and modeling and still doing the screenwriting, but screenwriting had somehow kind of become secondary to the acting. And, you know, so I started shooting these people and started, it wasn't like a profession. It was kind of a side gig or a hobby, but that's, that was my entree to photography is from being in front of the camera and then being intrigued by it and then moving behind the camera. That's quite a journey. That's some twisting, winding roads that led to photography. And yeah, this is technically my third career. You know, yeah. I've had finance and then the acting and modeling and now photography. And I didn't buy my first camera until I was 40. So wow. you know, for all those people out there that think I got to know by 22 or I got to be successful by 30, 35. I was never on an under 35 list because I was never even into photography until I was 40. So you can, you can start later in life. <laughs> that is key. And something else that's key that you said when you were working in finance, you made the decision to start saving, to set aside and basically have an exit plan. When you started saving, was that just like general savings for, you know, like how we all save or how we should be saving? Or was it specifically for, I am going to leave this profession so I can chase my dream of actually screenwriting? Was was that the case? Oh yeah, it was, I am saving this because my plan is at a certain point to leave the nest, leave the security of this corporate career and go out on my own and pursue my dreams. So that was always the driving factor. That is so interesting to me because, you know, as creatives and people in general, it's hard to make decisions like that. Those decisions where you have that clarity of knowing this is not going to get me where I want to go. And so that took a lot of courage for you to actually make that decision. Like, where did you even find that inner courage? Is that something that you've always had? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's courage or just, I think part of it comes from just growing up poor and in not the best situation. Because I think for me, you know, like I said, I was the first person on either side of my family to go to college. So when I went to college, I went to college in Texas, 15 hours away. And I had scholarships to a college right in my hometown that my high school girlfriend wanted me to go to, that she was going to. And my mom would have loved to me to go to. But I was like, no, I am getting out of here. I am going to see the world. I am going to make my own way. And so that got me down to Texas. And, you know, then, like I said, I started working in the corporate world and finance. And the move from getting out of that was, was, I guess, similar in motivation to me getting away from South Dakota, which is I have to, I don't know. There's always just, I got to pursue this dream. I got to, I can't just sit still. I don't want to settle. I don't want to be 50 years old. Or at that time, I didn't want to be 50 years old and wondering what if, you know, if I went and it failed, at least I knew I tried and I wouldn't have regrets. I I, I just always have not wanted to have regrets. Mm, mm, That is, that's strong words right there. And I think that's a very good way to live life because, you know, and I think, of course, in life, there's probably going to be some regrets, but you want the the joy and the knowing that you went after something to outweigh the the regrets. And it sounds like you live your life in that way. And so- rather regret trying something than regret never trying something. Exactly. Exactly. You made all of those transitions. And now here we find you've started getting some paid work while you're still doing the acting and and the screenwriting has taken a bit of a backseat. But now you're delving more and more into photography. What was the jumping off point from, okay, I'm shooting headshots, I'm shooting my friends to now you're taking the next step? What did that next step look like and where did it take you? So New Year's Eve 
2010, a friend of mine, actually uh, the friend who I moved to New York with, I I was initially going to go to LA to go to UCLA. This is how just weird things can sometimes happen to go to UCLA for their screenwriting program. But about, I don't know, a year before I was planning on making this move, I met a, a woman and we started dating. And so at the time I was going to make my move, I, you know, supposedly to LA, she was actually going to heading to New York to go to college. Uh, so it was her that got me switched to like, Hey, I've always, I've always loved going to New York for work, whether it's LA or New York, it doesn't really matter that much to me. At least this way I'm, I'm going with somebody. I know somebody and, you know, New York is such a, a marvelous place. So that's how it was New York. And then, you know, we ended up dating for another three years, but ended up ending the relationship, but we always still remained friends. And so I guess I had moved with her in 2010 and we ended in 2004 or in 2001, I moved to New York with her. And then we ended it in 2004, but 2010, six years later, we're still friends. And she invites me to uh, a a friend of hers, New Year's Eve party. And I say, yes, I'd love to go. I'd much rather go to, you know, a, a loft party, an apartment party, than go to a bar on New Year's Eve in New York. And I knock on the door, and when the door opens, it's, it's this lovely redhead, and I meet my soon-to-be, or not soon-to-be, but my future wife wow. at this party. And so we meet on New Year's Eve, we start dating, and about nine months later, she she uh, is an HR executive, and she used to work for Apple, and Apple wanted her to move to Hong Kong. You know, we were had been, like I said, dating only nine months, but we're both in our, she's in her 30 or late thirties. I'm in my uh, early forties. So, you know, things can be a little more expedited because you're mm-hmm. old enough to know who you are and what you want. Yep. She asked me, Hey, I would love to go to Hong Kong, but I don't want to go to Hong Kong without you. Would you be willing to go to Hong Kong? And I'm like, why not? Let's have an adventure. So, you know, she takes this assignment and we moved to Hong Kong. And when I moved to Hong Kong, I did a several things. I left behind screenwriting completely. And I left behind acting and modeling because there was no business for me to be an actor and a model there. And it also took away me shooting what was primarily what my hobby or side gig in photography, headshots and model tests too, because that wasn't something there. So we moved and I basically had nothing as a potential career other than photography, but not the photography I was doing. So I'm like, this is a skill I have. How can I make it work here? So I started doing um, some personal projects. I, I, made, I contacted a friend of a friend who ran a NGO in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And month two of us being there, I went and spent two weeks shooting for them. And then one of those, and that was actually one of the first awards I won, um, was one of those images I shot there was one with the grand prize for the PDN Faces and that's competition. And the shot with the three children in, in the water, right? Is that? That's a, Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so yeah, I, shot, I shot that in Cambodia that, that time. And suddenly I had kind of an NGO portfolio and I won some awards and got some, a little bit of recognition and for that. And I was doing some personal projects, portrait projects that were more editorial rather than fashion-y. So I had a little bit of work and I was, was, this is the funniest thing. And coincidentally, I started, I figured if I'm going to be there, I should take Cantonese to understand a little bit. So I show up to what's supposed to be a group Cantonese course with eight people in it. And it's just me and another lady across the way, just, you know, waiting for the instructor to show up. And so I introduce myself and she introduces herself and she goes, what do you do? And I go, oh, I'm a photographer. And I go, what do you do? She goes, I'm a photo editor. Wow. 
She was a photo editor for the Hong Kong Tatler, which is this kind of a combination of, I don't know, like a glossy, a big glossy like Manhattan or, you know, Gotham magazine, but for Hong Kong. And we hit it off and we had this class. And so I said, hey, well, I, you know, here's my work. And she looked at my work. And like a few weeks later, I got a call from her saying, hey, if you have a time, I have a potential assignment for you. So that was like kind of my first real editorial assignment. And I went and shot and they loved the images. And so then they hired me again and again. And then suddenly I was a person in Hong Kong that people in the United States knew. And I know there's not amazing photographers in Hong Kong that lived there, but I, I had made enough contacts because one of the things I had done before I went kind of prepping um, myself is I had gone to portfolio reviews, even though I didn't really have an editorial other than personal projects and things like that to show. I didn't have a lot of magazine work or really any magazine work at that time, but I had gone to these portfolio reviews and say, hey, here's some work. Here's what I'm capable of. I'm moving to Hong Kong, by the way. So all these editors knew that I was a photographer who had good work, but you know hadn't done a lot of stuff in the United States, but hey, I was going to be in Hong Kong. So as I started booking these, I would also be contacting these editors and sending promos and just emails saying, hey, here's, you know, I shot Takashi Kurosama for uh, the Hong Kong Tatler and here's a tear sheet. And, you know, I shot so-and-so for the Financial Times because other magazines and newspapers started to hire me there as well because I started doing work. And so that was kind of on the editorial side. And then the other thing is like, besides going and doing that personal project in Cambodia, which led to kind of getting some more NGO work. My wife and I, because Hong Kong is such an easy place and cheap place to travel from, like once every month or two, we take a long weekend somewhere. Oh, wow. So we'd fly to Thailand or we'd fly to Malaysia for, you know, just for a three or four day weekend. And I would shoot and I kind of quickly built up a kind of a bit of a travel portfolio. So I was also sending editors saying, hey, I shoot travel as well. And I started getting these little travel assignments. And then one time I was going to be in Shanghai and Hemispheres contacted me and said, hey, if you're going to be in Shanghai, we have a, a cover feature. And I got a cover feature Wait, for oh, Hemispheres oh. magazines. <laughs> you you just have like a snow, you had it's like a snowball effect of, of things that were happening. And you said quite a bit that I want, I want to kind of go back and unpack okay. just a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry. Interrupt me anytime. I no, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't want to interrupt too much <laughs> because I'm like, I'm loving the story that you're telling me here. And going back, I'm going to say a couple of quick things. One, I'm seeing some recurring themes with you not afraid to get up and go and and travel and uproot yourself to go to the places that you need to go even if in like in the case of you moving to Hong Kong it wasn't like you needed to go but because this woman that you loved was going and you didn't want to be away from her you gave up acting you gave up your photography all like that it's amazing to me and you don't call it courage but I feel like it is that you are willing to uproot yourself and do what you feel needs to be done and I think that definitely is contributing to the level of success that you're experiencing and something else that I, I wanted to point out because uh, it was one of the first things when I went to your website and started looking at the different tabs I always love going anytime I'm a photographer has the tab personal projects. I always love clicking on that because you can learn a lot about a photographer by the personal projects that they choose to undergo. And the first thing that you had listed on there, I believe, was Fulton Street. And so I, I click on it 
And immediately I was already excited because the way that you shot it had a very Avedon-esque, Richard Avedon-esque type of feel to it in his uh, with his In the American West. Like, I love that series that he shot of just interesting looking people on white, seamless and natural light. And so that project and I'm going to put a link in the show notes so everybody can see um, all of your work, basically. But. That project, when I'm when I'm looking at it and I'm I'm seeing, you know, the level of detail and I'm seeing the emotion that you captured, I'm like, okay, this, okay, Chris is he's he's on one for real. And so then, I, you know, I start going and I see the NGO projects that you were doing, and then I started to kind of think about, okay, so these are the personal projects that he likes undertaking, and then and and then you even had some of the work with I think it was like some I'm gonna misquote the title of it, but it mermaids. There were like mermaids mermaids and then there were the the pride parades and and so i'm like he's he's got an interesting interest in people who are on the fray sometimes or the people who might be overlooked or not as well appreciated um and yeah, so i'm like, like fringe, oh, and fringe cultural elements or social elements I, I really enjoy documenting and i'm a big fan like of personal projects i like making work and i yeah. like creating things. And so the, I think those two loves of, you know, the, the kind of these quirky cultural groups and documentary portrait, doc, documentary portrait, because it's not really documentary work. Like I'm following them around. It's like, I am just at an event or at a place trying to record, make a record of the, these are the people here who are participating in this, or these are the people here that live in this for Fulton street in this neighborhood. Yeah. And that, 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 that kind of project really appeals to me. I believe from an interview that I saw or, or a talk that you were giving, you were talking about with the Fulton street project, how, you know, this was right in the midst of, of gentrification in that neighborhood. And you wanted to capture the people who basically made the neighborhood before gentrification happened. And you noticed people were kind of migrating away from it because expenses go higher and people get kind of shifted and kicked out. And you wanted to capture that. And I, I felt like, man, that is that's pretty amazing. And, and it makes me wonder, what is it about even like what you said with the fringe subcultures and these these different groups of people, what is it about them that resonates with you? Like, why do you feel that you're drawn to that type of, of work? I love people. What draws me to photography, what's initially portraiture, and that's still my first love. I mean, even though I shoot documentary and or travel work, it's portraiture and that connection with the person, getting to know them a little bit and hopefully capturing a portrait that reveals a little bit about them. That, I don't know. There's just something special about that. You know, the, the, going back to Fulton Street, a lot of those shots, I'd have 10 seconds with somebody. You know, I, I, I would just tape a piece of seamless to a side of a building and just ask these people as they walk by, hey, do you have five seconds for an art project? And I mean, as, as you mentioned, it was a neighborhood that was gentrifying. It was a predominantly African-American, a hugely predominantly African-American neighborhood. And I was a white guy in that neighborhood that a lot of these people probably viewed as gentrifier, mm. even though I was living in an artist building with cheap rents. And, you know, I was just as neat, you know, <laughs> needing of the cheap rents as them. But, yeah. but the ability, I don't know, I've always had the ability to kind of quickly make a connection. And I, and I, and I love making that connection with people. And so if, if it's five seconds and I get two clicks, I'm, can usually hopefully get a decent image. And if it's five minutes, and I get to talk to them and hear a little of their story, even better. Mm. Um, you know, I, I love that as well. And, you know, 
Fulton Street was the kind of the first project like that, the first personal project where I shot something for me as opposed to what shooting something that I thought others wanted to see. And if Mm -hmm. there's one thing I should say, as if I had to give one piece of advice to people, find what you love to shoot and shoot that and not shoot what you think other people want to see. Because I can say that Fulton Street and doing that was the thing that kind of changed the trajectory of my career. Yes, going to Hong Kong helped, but you know, when I was at that portfolio review before I moved to Hong Kong and meeting with these editors, the thing that everybody loved was Fulton Street. That was good. That's what got them to remember, oh, this is the dude in Hong Kong. The Fulton Street dude is in Hong Kong. So yeah, shoot what you love and shoot personal projects because every time I've done it, it's 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 turned out to to work for me, you know. And yeah. so yeah, I just I, I love those projects because and and and, and you know, going back to your question, it's like, what is it about these cultures? I think a lot of these people aren't used to being shown in a, I don't know, I when I shoot these, I try to make it look almost like studio, like, you know, the Fulton Street is like Avedon's Into the American West, which is obvious influence on it. You know, the Mermaid Project, I'm setting up seamless and taking out lights, and it, you could almost think they're in the studio. So I'm making these people who are just, you know, maybe just have somebody, you know, they're clicking for a newspaper or whatever, feel like, hey, they're special. I am making an effort for them. I am making a professional picture. I am making a studio portrait of these guys, even if we're on the street. And I think that helps with the connection and the seriousness. And they realize I'm taking it serious and that I value them. And I think they respond to that. And and like I said, I don't know, there's some, the, the, the quirky, I mean, I just, I just love discovering things about people. And I love that people have all these weird, not, not to say that people with going to the mermaid parade are weird, but they have all these diverse uh, likes and have hobbies and everything else. And I, I, you know, I've shot uh, the Westminster dog show. I've shot the Bushwood drag festival. I've shot mermaid. I love going to these unique cultural groups and or social, you know, activities and just sharing them with the world. Cause I find them so fascinating and Mm. I hope other people do. And I, I try to shoot them in a way that other people are interested in seeing them and learning more about them. Well, mission accomplished there because I could not stop scrolling when I started going through all of those personal projects. And something else that I wanted to ask you about, you said that before you went to Hong Kong, you you brought up the, the fact that you went to the portfolio reviews. How did you even know that that was the thing to do. I know there's a lot of, you know, newer photographers that might be listening that don't understand the importance of portfolio reviews, but what caused you to even, or how did you even know that that was something that you should do? Uh, I was a little bit lucky in having been in front of the camera. So I had met a lot of assistants and a lot of working photographers being on the job as a model in front of the camera. And But I also knew that me as a headshot photographer was never going to get in front of those editors. I was never going to be able to just get a call from whatever magazine to say, hey, go shoot this. I knew I had to make a proactive effort to meet them. So I started shooting, you know, the Fulton Street project and some other personal projects just to kind of basically be able to have work that I wanted, that I was able to show that matched the work I wanted to get. You know, key. I, you know yeah, you got to shoot what you want to be shooting because so, people won't hire you unless they know you can. Yeah, it can be similar. It doesn't have to be exact, but you got to, sh- you know, if you want to be shooting editorial work, go out and shoot editorially. I, I have been shooting headshots and model tests, but I didn't want to shoot fashion. I didn't want to shoot headshots. So I, I made a conscious decision that 
I'm going to kind of get away from that and start doing these other things because that's what I wanted to do. So I asked the photographers and the assistants that I knew from working on those jobs in front of the camera, hey, if I want to do this, how would I meet somebody? And they're like, well, you know, if you're building the portfolio, then you probably the best thing is to go to these portfolio reviews. And so that's kind of what turned me on to it. And it was, I've been a big believer, you know, in portfolio reviews ever since, simply because it allows you the opportunity to not only get feedback on your work, but get your in front of somebody who could potentially hire you. And it's been lucky. I've been lucky that it's led to work for me. So, yeah. And it sounds like you also do a very good job of staying in contact with the editors and the other people that you meet along the way, because something else that, that you've said and that I've uh, come across in my research of you is, you, you know, you like to send out the the promos and you like to say, hey, I shot, you know, you'll reach out to a photo editor and you'll say, hey, I, you know, I was working the Westminster dog show and I got some images you might like. And you said, I mean, you were able to set yourself up for those type of conversations and emails through the meeting of the, the people, but then also understanding what it is that they as pub, pub, um, publications would need. So I, I think that you're doing a, a lot of things, a little small things that you're doing are really having major impacts down the down the line for you. And I'm, I'm a big fan of that type of work ethic. And I I think anybody who's listening is trying to figure out, yo, how do I even get to these publications so they can start working and then eventually getting into the celebrity photography and all that other stuff that you you find yourself doing from time to time. It's like, yo, you got to do these small things up front, you know, or early on. And of course, it starts with the work, but then there's the strategy <laughs> behind getting that work in front of the right people. So I think you do a very good job of doing that. Yeah. And that's one thing I think, like I said, this is like my third career and I think having done that time in the corporate world was, you know, obviously helped me grow up, but it was money to give me the chance to go pursue the arts later on. But it also gave me a skill set that's been very valuable because I think, you know, there's a lot of photographers who are amazing artists, but maybe not so good on the business side. And not that I'm perfect on the business side, but I think I do understand the things I need to do as a business person, as a photographer to make myself successful and, you know, the portfolio reviews, shooting personal projects, reaching out to people, like you said, pitching people, you know, knowing, Hey, I've met with that person from in style, or I met with that person from New York magazine and this mermaid or this Bushwig drag festival, those are the type of things they might like. So, Hey, I'll go shoot it, make sure I have something good. And then I have something to show them. And then I can say, Hey, I shot this yesterday. There, there's another day of this tomorrow. Or are you interested in picking this up? And I've been lucky that those types of pitches have worked for me. That is awesome. And, uh, you know, I wanted to just take a second to ask you about your own aesthetic for your for your imagery. And you've got and, and what I love about your work is, you, you know, how certain people say, all right, you need to have a style of shooting and you need to like stick to that style so people know that it's you and on one end i get why you know they would say that but there is room to switch it up and still you know have your own point of view and i think that you do a very good job of 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 doing that of executing in a way that you know you shoot you have you do you definitely have your own style of shooting but when i'm looking at your work I can see different styles that still tie into the Chris Sorensen point of view. And so my question is, what influenced your style? Like, where did you when you started seeing that, Okay, I need to shoot editorial. I need to shoot some other things other than what I've been doing. Who were some of the influences that you found yourself looking up to? 
Yeah. So I'm self-taught. I never assisted. I didn't go to photography school, obviously, as I mentioned earlier. So my training and my learning was on set in front of the camera, watching the photographers I was working with. And then it was just the beauty of the internet and the beauty of digital, which is you can shoot unlimited for, you know, once you buy the camera and the memory card, you know, the rest is free, so to speak. So, and the immediate feedback on the back of the card or on the back of the camera, that's okay, this is working, this isn't working. So I think I just absorbed a ton and looked at a ton of photography online. As far as like lighting, I mean, it's like strobus. I, I follow him on Twitter now and he follows me back and we talk. And it's amazing to me that 10 years ago I was learning from him. And now we're like Twitter friends because, you know, he is probably the biggest influence on, on technically like learning just the basics of lighting. Yeah, you know, I, I bought a ton of photography, uh, like photo books, you know, not like technical books, but like, photo- you know, Annie Leibovitz book, yeah. Mark Seliger book, you know, all these different books and look through them. And, you know, you just look through the web and, you know, once Instagram came on, you'd be looking through Instagram and some people's like, oh, I don't like to look at other images. I don't want to be influenced. I'm like, I love looking at other images. That's how I learned. And that's, that's what motivates me. And that's what inspires me. I'll see, even today, I'll see like an image with a certain lighting or a certain hairstyle or wardrobe and it'll trigger something else and I'll, you know, add it to my list. So it's, I mean, it's really hard for me. I mean, like, like Mark Seliger, I mean, not that he is the photographer that I was an you know, inspiration, whatever, but one thing I think that he and I have in common, not to put myself at that level or anything, but just as far as style is that he, he doesn't have a single style. I mean, mm. like you look at Dan Winters, Dan Winters, who I love as a, I mean, an amazing photographer, but all of his stuff has a certain and there's a lot of photographers like that. Like you said, people tell you when I was first starting photography and trying to get out of the headshot and going into editorial, people said, oh, you can't shoot travel. You can't shoot document. You got to shoot just portraiture and you have to have a single style, you know, because people, they tell you that because they think that's how you need to, you know, you have to have such a specific niche in order to get work. But I, that was never, never appealed to me because I don't like just doing the same thing over and over again. I, I want to create a cool image, a, an interesting portrait when I'm on assignment, but I don't want it to be like, oh, oh, that's Chris Sorensen style. He always shoots it like that. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to go and show up at this place I've never been to this person I've never met and look around and figure out, oh, wow, this is an interesting backdrop. And oh, if I do this with the lighting and he's got this certain look or he's wearing this outfit, we can make something cool here. I don't want to feel like I have to do it this way. I've done it every other time before. So, you know, and I think Mark Seliger, a lot of his work is all over the place like that. And so I, for whatever reason, I kind of ignored that advice and just said, hey, I'm going to shoot the way I like to shoot. And I'm going to shoot the things I like to shoot. Some of it's travel, some of it's documentary. And I've been lucky that I've been blessed to get jobs in all those genres and be somewhat successful with it. So I'm, I'm happy with it. But going back to what you were just saying, like another piece of advice I would give is, you know, don't always listen to people when they say you got to do this, you know, you got to specialize, or you got to do just one style, be yourself. And if yourself is shooting a bunch of different ways, do it because ultimately you have to be happy. And I wasn't going to be happy in shooting it, you know, just like I wasn't going to be happy shooting headshots the rest of my life because you're basically shooting the same thing the same style or even model tests. It's all, it gets a little samey. So that's, I knew I didn't want to do that. And so I didn't want to, once I moved to editorial, be in the same predicament, which is shooting the same thing all the time. So I do try to mix it up. I I love hearing the, you know, the differing views on, you know, how to actually go about doing your art because at the end of the day, it is an individual making the decision. And as individuals, 
you know, we're going to be different. Things are going to happen. Some things are going to work for certain certain people and other things won't. I mean, there'll be people who are here who will hear this and think, oh, I want to do it all. But, you know, maybe <laughs> there's somebody else who's like, I don't want to do it all. I do want to kind of focus on that one thing. And like you said, listen to your own voice and then act accordingly. And uh, something else that I wanted to touch on, because you talked about Strobist, and that was actually uh, one of the when I <laughs> when I first I'm self-taught as well. So when I first started attending YouTube University, as I like to call it, I would um, I think I came across like a Strobus video or no, I came across the Strobus blog, actually. And I was like, oh, off camera flash is exactly the look that I I, I didn't know. I, I, I knew that the work that I was shooting didn't give me the aesthetic that I wanted, but I didn't know what they were doing until I came across Strobus. I'm like, oh my God, this is the look that I've been wanting to do. So, you know, then I went out and bought some, you know, I went to Amazon and bought some cheap speed lights and got some modifiers and I, you know, I worked it out, man. But, um, no, one thing that I wanted to say about your lighting and, and, and this ties back into your, your style, um, in your point of view is, it is clear to me that when I look through your portfolio, you're not a one trick pony when it comes to lighting. I, you, you you like to flex on us sometimes like you can see like, OK, OK, he brought out the big guns for for, for this situation. And then there's certain situations where it's like, oh, yeah, that's you know, that's one light. And, you know, he put it where it needed to go and it was solid. But you can you, you can definitely tell from your body of work that you understand lighting and you know how to use the tools in a way that will communicate the story that you're wanting to communicate communicate in the images. And I, and I guess that ties back into what you were saying, you know, about liking the artistic side, but then the technical, because you clearly have a grasp on the technical. Well, thank you. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly it. I, I love, the, I mean, like it tickles both sides of my brain, you know, that what allows me to be creative and create art, so to speak, is this technical and techie part of this and and understanding that like for whatever reason given my background and just having an aptitude for that you know lighting just kind of made sense to me i try to explain things to my wife and you know we're doing some things and it's not necessarily as a organic for her to understand fall off and things like yeah, that yeah but it but it makes sense to me and you know just through the course of teaching myself and then you know trying to continue a lot of times these personal projects are as much to expand my skill set as anything else anything i do on a on a personal project is things that I can later bring to bear on an assignment. So it's personal projects are not only emotionally and creatively rewarding, they're also technically rewarding, you know, and professionally rewarding because they, they, A, they give you something to pitch to other people and or to use as a promo, but also they give you skills that you might not, not otherwise have had. That is great. And I, I've got a couple more things and then I'll, I'll let you go. Our time is almost up. But one, because you brought up your wife just a moment ago, I absolutely love the series that you've been doing, Wife During Quarantine. Oh, my God, man. First of all, again, it shows your range of abilities when it comes to creating an image. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Who is styling these shoots? I'm like, even with the, um, <laughs> uh, there's so many of them. Like you've, you've done, it. there was one where it was kind of like a paper cutout of, of your wife in front of a white picket fence on green. And then there's the other one with the, um, what's the show on Hulu? Handmaid's Tale. And you do like all, and again, I'm going to link these so everybody can see what I'm talking about. But they all just come together so beautifully. And of course, the magic is in the beauty of your wife. She is pulling off 
all of these things. So you guys are like the perfect pair when it comes to, you know, that whole creative, you've got your, your skill set, And like, she, I don't, I was going to ask you, like, does she model before or like, are you just straight coaching her on what to do? Because I'm just impressed with every one of those images. Well, thank you so much. And this has been just a tremendous project just personally and creatively and for, you know, beginning of quarantine of the pandemic, I had lost all of my assignments and had nothing to do. And you know, we're living in New York, which is the epicenter at that time of the pandemic. And, you know, it was just shut down and there was such sickness and death and fear and uncertainty. And for the first month and a half of quarantine, I basically sat on the couch and read and watched bad news. And I just had no motivation to shoot. And then one day, you know, my wife obviously was still working and she was on these Zoom calls and yeah, she was wearing this silk shirt, green silk shirt. And I noticed, oh my gosh, we have those peacock feathers that she had decorated with. And oh my God, I have this greenish backdrop. This, you know, there's an image there. So yeah, I said, do you have 10 minutes? She did her hair kind of in a medieval-ish way and did the backdrop. And wow, you know, it felt good to create again after, it felt good to not think about the pandemic, but also to be creating. And a couple of days later, I had another uh, idea and we shot that and then another. And one of the things that kind of had depressed me is, as I mentioned earlier, I love the interaction of portraiture. Mm. You know, I love going someplace and meeting someone fascinating and making a portrait of them. And that was gone. And I didn't know when it was going to be back. And that really bummed me out. And then all of a sudden I realized, I mean, yes, I can't meet other people. You know, I can't be shooting different characters, but I can make different characters with my wife. And so that kind of became the the motivation is we're going to create all these different versions of my wife. And as far as like who's styling it, we're doing it. And, you know, every project it's been just her and I and something in the house or something we've ordered on Amazon or from B&H, you know, for the seamless stuff. And the thing that has actually made the project successful is my wife. Cause I mean, if you look through it, you know, having been a photographer and having been in front of the camera before then there are looks both makeup and hair wise that you need a professional hair and hair stylist or a professional makeup artist. And my wife is neither. She's a, you know, she's never modeled. She hates having a picture taken. Wow. She's a, she, she's an HR executive, but she is, I mean, not that I didn't know she was great with hair and makeup before, but I didn't know she was this great with hair and makeup. <laughs> And so she's been able to pull off these amazing hair and makeup looks that have made many of the projects or many of the images possible. And she also helps with styling for clothes and jewelry. And she's also been very good. She's much more handy with me. So like on the, the, the kind of white picket fence, seamless, you know, kind of paper doll look, she's the one who cut out everything because I I'm terrible at that. So she's very handy and creative and artistic. So she can do those kind of things. You know, if I'm thinking this kind of hair, what do you think? And can you pull it off or this kind of makeup? And I'm thinking this for wardrobe, but what do you think? And it kind of, <laughs> at that point, we hash it out together and you know realize it together. And it's, like I said, we, we just made our 47th image yesterday and I posted it on Instagram today. So yeah, in the last 10 months, I guess we've made 47 images. So about one and, you know, one a week, one and a half a week. And it's been an amazing experience. And, you know, going back to like saying there's a wide range of lighting and whatever, I've basically used this project as, as a learning experience. When you're on an assignment, you know, you can't always like, oh, I'm going to try this new and crazy lighting thing. Cause you, you, know, you maybe have five minutes or 10 minutes mm-hmm. with the person and you got to come back with three looks for the client. You can't necessarily chance spending yeah. half of that time on one crazy thing that you're not sure are going to pull off. So a lot of this has been like, Hey, I, this is something that interests me or this lighting is cool. Or let's see if, 
you know, I can try something new and build my skill set working with my wife. And then that's something I can, like I said, I can later bring to my clients and to my professional work. Not that well, this isn't professional work, but my editorial work. You two are like, uh, it's a match made in heaven when it comes to that. Because like I said, I, I just feel like everything always comes together on those. And and I think it's amazing that she's doing all the work that she is for it to all come together. So, you know, I guess the couple that creates together stays together. So keep creating. Yeah, it's, it's been a very positive thing uh, to get us through the pandemic and just made our relationship stronger. Last thing that I I wanted to bring up um, is something that this year I actually decided to start making more of a priority because in years past, I've, I've just always found myself too busy to really even think about it. And that is the whole idea of photography contest and submitting to these different opportunities to show your work in front of some people who could eventually get you work. Can you talk a little bit about how entering these contests have impacted your career? I think, I think they're valuable, but I think because they're valuable that in some ways they've become too common. Mm. Um, I mean, there are certain competitions that are name brands that are well-known that have been there forever. And I think those add value. I think there's been a lot of pop-up competitions that People see like, oh, there's a lot of people out there who want their work seen, who want an opportunity. But I don't want to say they're desperate, but you know they don't. You know they don't. They don't have exposure to editors, and so a competition that has a few editors of magazines or outlets they've heard of, that's like, hey, that's good. And but there's also like, I don't want to say fly by night, but there's a lot of competitions that are new that really don't necessarily provide bang for the buck. Mm. So I try to avoid those kind of things. And I always ask people, you know, how much are you paying? Who's the judge? How long has it been? And how long has that competition been around to kind of determine if it's worthwhile? So I think competitions are very worthwhile. I just think you need to be, you know, particular in which ones you enter. Mm. For me, the, the main ones that I always enter are American photography, communication arts, photo annual, and then the PDN contest and PDN recently went bankrupt, but they're now it's like just the, instead of the PDN photo annual, it's just the photo annual. But mm-hmm. those are the three that I always enter. There's also like lens culture, which is a, a website and photo community that has things that I've entered in the past. You know, there's the Sony awards, but so there's, there's a number of the big awards. And I think those are the ones, the IPA international photography awards. Those are another one um, that are good, but there's a lot of them that, if you've never heard of before, I'm not sure that they add value, but I do think the big ones where you can send an, you know, where there are big name editors who are judging. And then if you do happen to win an award or get an honorable mention or get some kind of recognition from them, it makes sense to then edit or uh, send an email to an editor. And they're going to know that American photography or IPA or the Sony awards or lens culture, if it's Joe Blow's black and white competition, I mean, that's not necessarily going to give you much credibility necessarily with someone you send it to. So that's why I think sticking to the ones where it's more a strategic use of your time and money um, rather than just submitting to all of them. Um, but then, like I said, I've been lucky to have won awards for various competitions and it's great in the fact that it basically gives you a calling card. I don't necessarily know if it leads immediately to work, but like I said, there are obviously the judges who are judging these who are people who can give you work. 
but it's things you can put in a promo email to editors. It's things you can put on your website. It's things when you go to a portfolio review, you can say, well, you know, this image while you're, while they're looking through your portfolio, this was selected for, you know, communication arts photo annual or American photography. And it just starts to, I guess, establish you, you as somebody who is a, you know, working professional, a successful professional, somebody worth them taking the time to view your work and potentially assign. Mm. That is good stuff. And I think because I was self-taught, I didn't do that early on. So I wasn't aware of some of the the smaller tactics and, and strategies that I could use in order to not only grow as a photographer, but also get exposure in a way that actually matters. Because, you know, there's, of course, people who will want to try to sell you on the idea of, oh, you know, it's it's uh, it's for exposure. But if you're not being exposed to the right people or, or, or if, if the right people aren't being exposed to your work, then, you know, what what are, what are you doing it for? Like, it's got to be beneficial to you in some shape, form or fashion if it's going to be for exposure. So I think that for anybody that's listening, that is some key information that I hope that you take away from this podcast or from this episode, because you really never know what could happen. And, and like you said, it doesn't guarantee anything. But if it can oh it can crack a door open uh, at the very at the very minimum but what you do with that crack is up to you because again you have done some very strategic things with the contacts that you have made like it seems like you really um are intentional about nurturing those those contacts in a way that ends up being beneficial for everyone, not just you, but for them, because at the end of the day, we do have to be, you know, providing value and, and providing content that people want. And I, I think that your career thus far has has definitely been a, a great example of that. And I love the fact <laughs> that you didn't pick up a camera until you were 40, because it's like nobody has an excuse to like not be doing the thing that they love doing and and your story and your journey is is a perfect example of that so i just hope that you continue doing what you're doing and you know i'm gonna be right there on instagram following along and and seeing what you guys uh do next so man congratulations and you know much much more success to you thank you it was great being on i appreciate your uh comments and time and i I love your work as well looking forward to see what you do as well All right. That is our show with Chris. And man, what a winding journey that he has had to make it to where he is today. I mean, really picking up the camera at the age of 40 and really digging in deep and making things happen. It's it's just proof to show that, you know, we can make anything happen and, and time and age is really not an excuse. So whether you're out there and you're 15 year old that's listening or you're a 50 year old that's listening, there's things that you can be doing to progress your own career in this industry. And something else that actually we didn't bring up during the conversation that I thought was interesting is while Chris was working his magic in front of the camera as a model and actor, our very first guest, Kareem Black, actually photographed him for a a campaign. So uh, I thought that was pretty interesting to uh, to come across that information after the fact. And something else that I found to be interesting is the connection with Hong Kong. Uh, For everybody that listened to the Carmen Chan episode, uh, we know that she ended up moving to Hong Kong and basically made a name for herself there before moving back to the States. And Chris basically did the same thing. So there might be something to packing your bags and heading to Hong Kong if you're a photographer that's looking for your big break. I don't know. No, but anyway, 
that is the show. Uh, as always, I appreciate you for listening. I appreciate you for sharing it with your other photographer friends. Uh, please continue to like, subscribe, comment, follow us on Instagram at what makes you click podcast or on Facebook at what makes you click. And yeah, man, I just appreciate you guys for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.